Thanks for tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. going to rain today. Like a 50% chance. Did you, did you hear that? It's like 90 degrees in the middle of July. Do they think it's uh, like Hawaii or something? I wish. I can dream, right? I think Jamaica in the moonlight. Don't you love the dirt band? Um, for those of you wondering, you know, who, who is this guy? Um, I am not Mike McKay. Uh, he didn't suddenly lose all his hair and get a little taller. I'm, I'm Steve Ellis, uh, an on-again, off-again elder here at Neighborhood Church, currently off. Uh, but I'm excited, again, to have the privilege of exploring God's Word with you this morning. Um, I don't know exactly why it is, but it, it seems that when they make up the summer preaching schedule, I tend to draw the week that kicks off Bible Day Camp. I mean, a couple of years ago, I, I preached out of a forest when the theme was the Great Rescue. Do you remember that? And this morning, I'm backstopped by a bunch of giant Legos. Bonus for you, though, because if my wordiness is unengaging, you can just let your eyes wander around up here and think about building your life on the rock. Amen? Sound advice. Never too late to start. Um, we are continuing with our climb series through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 124, uh, 134, excuse me. And as, as uh, Christy read this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalms 123 and 124 today. You know, we are climbers by nature. Any of you who are parents understand this. You know, you, you've got to keep an eye on those little ones. Our... Um, our youngest daughter, we lived at this two-story house in Long Beach, and so we had one of those, you know, plastic sliding gates that you would put at the top of the stairs so the toddlers didn't take a tumble. And it got to the point where my wife, at nap time, would take that plastic gate and put it on top of our daughter's crib because, I mean, she already had the mattress at the lowest possible setting, but that little girl managed to figure out how to climb out of her crib before she could hardly even walk. She was like born with suction cups on her toes or something. I don't know. We are climbers by nature. They want to climb. And we encourage it. Uh, you know, when we had teenagers who were struggling with those questions about, you know, what should I do? Uh, should I study this? Should I work here? Should I go there? You know, my advice to them was always, you know, go as high on the mountain as you can. Because you'll get a better perspective. The higher you go, the more you'll see, and you can make more informed decisions, right? I mean, there's a 360-degree panoramic view from the top of the hill. You don't get to the top of the hill, you might never see what's on the other side. We are climbers by nature. And these 15 songs, uh, psalms, were songs that would be sung collectively by the people of Israel as they ascended up into the central mountains of Israel towards the temple during the four major festivals of the year for which they would come all the way to Jerusalem. They would come by foot, most of them, walking, and as they walked, they sang. They didn't walk like this, as so many of us do. You know, there's a benefit to not having all the 
diversions and distractions that compete with our attention. They sang as they traveled and they sang the scriptures, as we will often do in our songs of worship. It's a powerful way to orient your mind and your heart. There's a pattern to these psalms. They sing a lot in some of the earlier ones about their troubles and distress, trouble in this life and in this world. Because one of the things we find in the psalms is there is a real honesty. They're not all, um, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. You know, those are the little ditties we like to sing, right? We tend to like songs that are upbeat and sunny, like... Um, I'm in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time. I, I forget the hand motions that go with that song. But the Psalms are not that way. Some of them are, to be fair, but most of them are just raw emotion. But there is a change in the tone of the songs as they get closer to their destination. They start to sense the end of their journey and sharpen their focus. The book of Psalms is right about the middle of your Bible uh, if you're old school like me, or you can find it on your app or your iPad, some of the verses will be up here on the screen. And there's a brief outline in the worship folder that will track the major points. But before we dive in, would you all stand with me and let's ask the Lord to give us understanding this morning as we look into his word. Lord, thank you that you let us in this little church be a part of your work, have some part to play and what you are accomplishing here in Cypress, California, communities that surround us, and, and even in other parts of the world through the mission work that goes out of this place. It is a privilege, and we thank you for it. Lord, we pray especially this week for Bible Day Camp and the little hearts and minds that will be so affected by your word. Speak to us through your word, Lord. We give our attention to it, these, these songs of ascension, we pray that you would show us things that are relevant to our lives here and now in this time. We ask these things in the name and glory of our King and Mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalms 123 begins with the statement, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. I look to the Lord. I look to you, says the psalmist. For what? Well, for guidance, for wisdom, for understanding, for instruction, for purpose and meaning, for confidence, for assurance, for strength, for security, for protection. Maybe it would be easier to ask the question, what don't we look to the Lord for? Is there anything on that list? Who you look to matters. Who or what you keep your eyes on makes a difference. We all know from experience that when you're in the middle of some kind of difficulty or struggle or uncertainty, the more you focus on the problem, the bigger it gets. In this psalm, the issue expressed is, is scorn and, and ridicule and contempt being heaped on them by those who are at ease and proud, as we saw in verse 4. Ah, too bad for you. You know, there's an old Jewish proverb that says, it's not enough for me to succeed. My friends must fail. There's some uncomfortable truth in that statement, honestly, by the way, because there's a part of us that's at least tempted to secretly take pleasure 
in the misfortune of others. You know, we think, well, at least I'm not like that guy. We should never be the proud or the scornful ever. Even when people disagree with us, even when they aren't living the way we think they should. People need Jesus. He's the one who can clean up the mess. He's the only one. The author here doesn't put his focus on the problem. He doesn't complain that he's being unfairly treated or that he deserves better, doesn't ask for his detractors to be skewered, which is often our initial reaction when we have a disagreement with someone or we get insulted or we get treated unfairly. Often our first reaction is to start thinking, okay, what could I do or say to put them in their place? The psalmist doesn't focus on any of that. He he simply says, I look to you, Lord. Grant me mercy when you're ready. I'm keeping my eyes fixed on you. You know, there's a song that expresses this truth, I think, as clearly and succinctly as anything I've ever come across, and many of you may know it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will look strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm looking to you, Lord. It says I'm looking to you in verse 2 as a servant looks to his master or a maid to her mistress. Now, I think there are a couple of things that are significant about this particular metaphor that's used. Number one, a servant doesn't have to worry about provisions, about resources, because that's up to the master to supply. It's the master's role to provide the servant everything he needs to do his or her job. What the servant has is given to him by the master, and the servant uses those resources to perform whatever tasks the master has entrusted the servant to perform. You know, if you're supplying your own tools, you're setting your own hours, you're an independent contractor, not a servant. We are not freelancing for the kingdom of God. We are called to be servants. There is a difference. I don't know what images come to your mind when you think of servitude. Um, I'm well aware that we are having an ongoing national conversation in this country about the history of slavery and and what that means or or should mean for us today. But the the idea of servitude being depicted here is something entirely different. Uh, The servitude... Um, in, in the economy of ancient Israel, had nothing to do with your race. It wasn't about oppression. It wasn't about conquering your enemies and making them your slaves. It was a matter of economics. It was a matter of employment. If you owed debts, you became the payment of that debt if you couldn't pay it. You would work as a servant for the master who then satisfied your debt, canceled it out. Anybody here have a mountain of debt that has been canceled by the master? I know I do. A debt I couldn't possibly pay that was canceled by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. 
But in that day, it was not uncommon at the end of the period of servitude for a servant to decide, you know what? I think I'd like to stay on. You're a good master. You are kind. You're generous. I have everything I need under your house, and I'm going to continue to serve at your direction. And that person was known as a bondservant. That's how Peter, the apostle Paul, Timothy, James, the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, all identified themselves in the New Testament epistles as bond slaves, as bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. You guys are familiar with this concept, right? There was a tradition, by the way, where someone who had declared himself to be a bond servant would, would place his or her ear against the doorpost of the master's house, and they would, they would drive an awl through it into the doorpost, thus leaving blood on the doorpost of the master's house. That was a statement. And then they would put a gold earring typically in the, in the hole that would heal. And the earring was not a symbol of royalty. It was a symbol of servitude. Much like, you know, it was a statement to the world that I have chosen to join myself in service to someone for life. But, you know, much like we, we tell the world through our wedding wings that I have joined myself to someone in service for life. I love you, honey. I'm your bond servant. She's not going to let me forget that either, by the way. You know, the, as, as, as sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are, we are called to serve, not out of compulsion, not out of coercion. The Lord's never going to make you do anything, but because of his enduring goodness to us and what he provides for us, like a bond servant. And the important thing here is a servant doesn't need to worry about provisions. That's the master's problem, not his. All a servant needs to do is focus on obeying the will of his master. And so it is with us. As servants of the Most High God, we need to remember we have all the resources we need at our disposal. Everything we need is provided to us by him. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, a verse I'm sure you're familiar with, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Everything we need to undertake the work that God has called us to do will be supplied by him. The promise of God is to supply you with everything you need. Not necessarily everything we want. We turn wants into needs in our mind all the time but he will supply all our needs when we need it to accomplish his will for our life. This is a consistent theme in Jesus' teaching. He told the assembled crowd in Matthew 6, 31 to 32, why do you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or what you're, what you're going to drink? Your heavenly father knows what you need. Early in the same chapter, Jesus had said to them, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard by their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And even though God knows already what we need, he still wants us to ask and be persistent in asking, according to the Lord Jesus because he wants us to stay engaged with him. That process of petitioning the Lord for our needs is one of the ways that we continually remind ourselves 
that he is the master and we are relying on his provision for life. As a servant, I look to the master as the one who provides for me. But I'm also looking to the hand of my master to point out where it is I am to go next and what it is I am to do. Looking for my orders, looking for my instructions. What are my directions? And, you know, honestly, this is a concept, I think, that we as American Christians sometimes struggle with. The whole concept of a, of a Lord and master that we are to serve. You know, we're fine with the idea of a master giving us everything we need, but we're not so keen on the idea of somebody else telling us what to do. I mean, after all, this is the land of the free, right? We just celebrated all that a couple of weeks ago. I am grateful for this great nation. Don't misunderstand me. I, I believe in America. I think it is the greatest thing going on earth right now, but there are much better things coming way better under the reign of Jesus Christ, our King. You know, a monarchy is by far the most efficient form of government the world will ever see. The problem is you got to have the right King or it's really bad. And understanding that reality and having fought a war to get out from under one of those Kings, our founding fathers created this democratic form of government with all sorts of checks and balances to prevent any bad actors from gaining too much power. The trade-off is it's, it's really hard to get things done. You notice that? But because most of you grew up under this system and have had it drilled into us from an early age that, that you know, America is where everybody gets an equal vote and we cherish our freedoms, we die for them. This whole concept of of submission, of servitude, is often difficult for us. You know, we have, a, we have a fiercely independent spirit. We think, I'm an American. I bow to no one. Well, what about your king? Because you are not just an American citizen. As a matter of fact, first and foremost, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. And it is a kingdom, not a democracy. We tend to think of the kingdom of God sometimes as the, the democratic republic of God, where everybody gets a little vote, and we go along with what the king says when we like it. It's not right. It's a kingdom, and the kingdom has a king, and we are to look to him for direction. Because, guys, what, what is sin? What is sin? You can, I mean, you can say, well, it's breaking the law or it's not living up to the required standard or it's missing the mark, all of which is true. But sin, boil it down at its essence. Sin at the root is willfulness, refusing to take direction. The only perfect life that was ever lived on this earth was lived by one who did perfectly the will of another. You know that, right? The only truly good were, were, um, man the world has ever seen, the only one who ever lived a sinless life, was lived by one who did not do his own will, but submitted to the will of another. The Lord Jesus, doing the will of his Father. 
Do you understand that the king that we bow to is the ultimate servant? That everything he asks of us, he himself has already done, including faith, even trust, faith in his father. We place our faith in one who himself trusted. We serve a king who came not to be served, but to serve. He is the ultimate pattern for us. And we're called to be servants. That means we look to him for our orders, not calling the shots or, or making it up as we go along. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Actually, it is the lamp. It is the light. There is no other. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, his will, as he has revealed it, and he will make your paths straight. You know, too often our decisions are driven by our own desires our own comfort, our own convenience, rather than what the word of God says. I say this to every man, husband, parent, grandparent, everyone in a position of some influence, you are not supposed to be leaning on your own understanding. You are supposed to be a man under authority. Like the Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7 so keenly recognized and Jesus was amazed at his insight. You are to be a one who is under authority, who gets his orders from God and lives them out as examples to everyone under your charge. If we want to lead effectively, we have to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. A man under authority, more accurately, under the authority. Because the parting words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, 18 were this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. All authority comes from him because he is the authority. He is the one who lays out the blueprint that we are to follow. And he said in John 15, 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. You bring yourself under my authority. Tell me what you need. And I'll make sure it gets taken care of. That's a good master. Are we living under his authority? That's the question. Do we look to his hand for our instruction? Does the word of God inform our decisions and our choices all the time? Does his word guide and govern our conduct? Am I actually submitting to the authority of my Lord? You know, I'd like to imagine myself getting up every morning, Lord, reporting for duty. What are my orders today? I don't do that as often as I should, truthfully. We need to ask ourselves every day, who's calling the shots? Is it me or is it you? We need to come under the authority of the king. It's as simple as that. Everyone will eventually. I mean, Philippians 2.10 makes that abundantly clear. Every knee will bow. Either in this life or, or on the day of judgment, you really only get to choose when. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. 
Psalm 124, the next psalm, deals with God's protection, and it closes with similar language. It, um, it says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. As we saw, our, pack, our passage this morning is bracketed. It begins and ends with an acknowledgement there is a God who made it all, who is enthroned in the heavens, the position of supreme authority, and he is the one we look to. His name is our help. Psalm 124 begins with the question, if it hadn't been for the Lord, where would we be now? Does that ever cross your mind? It does mine. I think all the time, man, if it wasn't for the Lord, where would I be? If left to my own devices, I don't even want to think about it, actually, truthfully. You know, there's a degree of debate among the scholars and con- commentators what, what exactly is being referenced here with this imagery of Israel on the verge of being swallowed by a massive foe or swept away by raging waters and mighty torrents or, or narrowly escaping from a snare, a trap. The Psalms widely attributed to David, and if he's the author, which I think is likely, then it, it would be referring to some event or events in Israel's history that preceded David's life. So it would not be then a reference to the delivery of Israel from the invasion and siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib and the Assyrians as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 19, when an angel of the Lord slew 185,000 in a single night. It wouldn't be deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. It, it, it wouldn't be the deliverance of Israel from the genocidal schemes of Haman that the book of Esther is all about, because those things all came later. I mean, it could be something that, that happened, some events during the period of the judges. You remember the story of Gideon and his 300 men in Judges chapter 6 being given miraculous victory over an army of Midianites that had over 130,000 foot soldiers. Could be a, a reference to David's encounter with Goliath or his, his battle with the Philistine kings. Or perhaps the Exodus, one of the most seminal events in Israel's history. Moses leads the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt by the hand of God. And, and then Pharaoh has a change of heart, thinking, you know, we, we just lost a really valuable source of cheap labor. Let's go get it. And Pharaoh's armies pursue the Israelites and, and come upon them when they are camped on the shore of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chariots come up to the bluffs overlooking the shoreline. And Pharaoh says, Moses' God is a very bad general to leave him with no retreat. And we know that's what he said because that's what Yul Brenner said in the movie, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're under 40, go watch the Ten Commandments this week. If you can find it even, it's, it's an epic movie. But God delivers them. He parts the waters. The Israelites pass through the other side. Pharaoh's armies try to follow, and it's goodnight Irene. Wall to wall, the history of Israel is replete with stories of deliverance and restoration because of God's rescuing love, his hesed, both corporately and individually. You know, I think of Daniel and his three friends. You know, by the way, God's hesed, as Mike says all the time, is a rescuing love. 
And he has a knack of showing up right when things seem the most dire. Have you noticed that? You know, Daniel spent the night in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the fiery furnace. Sometimes I wonder if, if they weren't afterwards maybe thinking, Lord, could you maybe have shown up a little sooner? But whatever is being referenced here, this psalm is a reminder that God protects his people. He is for them. Don't you love that song, The Blessing? So good. Especially that refrain where over and over again they sing, He is for you, 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 he is for you. And then he goes, ah, I I feel like singing it. I kind of am, actually. But that is the word of God. It is straight out of Numbers chapter 6, Psalm 56, 9, and, and many other passages of scripture. And that should fill us with confidence. Romans 8.31 is probably a familiar passage to most of you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What weapon fashioned against us can stand? Isaiah 54.17. Howard Hendricks, who was a longtime professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary and, and instrumental in the Promise Keepers movement, Uh, He passed away in 2013 at the age of 88, but he was asked once by one of his graduate students, Professor, what what do you think is the one thing that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples more than anything else? And, and Professor Hendricks said, you know, that's, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Let me, let me think about that. So he, he thought about it for a couple of weeks and he went and found that graduate student. He said, you know, I mean, Jesus was obviously teaching his disciples of a lot of things, but he, think, I, he said to that student, I think the most important thing, or certainly one of the most important things, Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples was not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. How many times do we see the Lord say that in the Gospels over and over and over? Don't be afraid. I'm a, I'm a big military history buff, um, especially World War II, uh, but even more so the American Civil War. I, I read voraciously about the Civil War as a young man, and I, I was fascinated by some of the personalities that came out of that conflict, men who rose to the challenge under situations of, of tremendous difficulty. And, and I, I know they're tearing down all the Confederate statues Um, But truthfully, there were men of deep faith who fought on both sides of that conflict. And one of them was a a fellow by the name of Thomas J. Jackson, better known as Stonewall Jackson. He got his nickname at the first major land engagement of the war, uh, the Battle of Bull Run, the first Battle of Bull Run outside Manassas Junction, where he led a brigade on Henry House Hill and rode back and forth along the line, imploring his men to stand fast under a vastly superior advancing Union force that already had the rest of the Confederate army in full retreat. Jackson had two horses shot out from from under him that day. He, He had a bullet go through his trench coat. The only 
real physical injury he suffered was a broken finger on his left hand from a graze wound that eventually healed. And he was asked after the battle, what was it that gave him such courage to be able to stand fast in the face of what was obviously mortal danger? And this is what he said. He said, the Bible teaches me, sir, that God is the sovereign ruler over all things. The date and time of my death has been appointed by God, but I do not concern myself with such things. For my life is in the hand of the Lord. And therefore, I am as safe in battle as I am in bed. All men should have this confidence, sir, and they would be equally brave as I. I am as safe in battle as I am in bed. I I read those words as a young man, and I said, I'm going to remember that. That is faith in action. I am as safe in battle as I am in bed, because my life is in the hands of the one enthroned in the heavens, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen? I look to him, and this I know. He is for me. Will you pray? Lord, help us to be men and women, firmly planted on the rock, able to stand firm by your divine power and grace, even when everything around us is crumbling like sand. We look to you, O Lord, the only wise king. Grant us mercy today and every day, you who are enthroned in the heavens. We ask this in the name of the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ the one by whom and for whom all things were made. Amen.